Well, let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to think about this text today in the life, in the ministry of Jesus when he himself was faced with grief and sadness. Please help us as we think through this together that we also might be delivered from that which afflicted Herod and that which afflicts many people. Grant that we might hear your word and rather than harden our hearts against it as Herod did, help us to have a soft, listening, ready heart We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll have to agree that there's something about our text this morning that's just so sad, gruesome, distressing, unfortunate, even moving. Perhaps it's the vast contrast that comes out that contrast between people partying and having fun and yet at the same time John the Baptist languishing in jail and being executed. But perhaps the saddest saddest part of all, for me anyway, is the reason for John's execution. Herod's troubled conscience. Something that was real to him but something that could have been dealt with another way so that it didn't result in what it did result in. Well, let's set the scene for this sad text as we remember where we are and where we're heading in this series in Matthew's Gospel. You'll remember that last year we explored the parables that Jesus told in Matthew 13 and last week we finished off Matthew 13 with a look at how Jesus was rejected by the people of his hometown at Nazareth. Now this rejection of Jesus is a growing theme at this point in Matthew's Gospel. Beginning in Matthew 13 is the general theme of a rejection of Jesus' public ministry. Not only by the Pharisees, but also by the crowds who were following after him. And this chapter 14, now that we've reached it, continues in this vein. And so in the first 12 verses, we come to face to face with the account of the death of John the Baptist. J.C. Ryle says we have in this passage a page out of God's book of martyrs. And this martyrdom of John happens in the context of the rejection of Jesus by the crowds and by the people in his hometown. Because he wasn't the kind of Messiah he was, they were looking for. And also because, as we heard last week, of their deeply rooted unbelief. The next time we meet Jesus is in verse 13, next week. And there we find that Jesus is affected by the grief of John's death. And Jesus withdraws from public altogether. He begins to teach his disciples more intensively. 
Then why is that? Well, Matthew tells us in these verses, especially in verses 1 and 2 of our text, that Herod mistakenly believed that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, you and I wouldn't understand what Matthew's talking about in those verses if he didn't tell you the story of John's death. And that's why John's death is now inserted here to help us, the reader, understand what's going on in Herod's mind. We didn't know that John was dead. We didn't know what happened. So Matthew tells us. And he tells us this also to help us appreciate why Jesus will limit very soon his public appearances, so to speak, from this point on. Now, as an important aside, and it's important for the understanding of the text, we need to know which Herod we're dealing with. You remember that there was a king called Herod at the time of the birth of Jesus. His name was Herod the Great. This is not him. Herod the Great died soon after he ordered the death of the male children in Bethlehem, aged two and under. So who is this? Well, it's his son, Herod Antipas. He's not the same Herod that we find in the book of Acts. There we find Herod Agrippa. But this is Herod Antipas. He is the Herod who oversaw both the death of John and the death of Jesus. Jesus' death is still chapters away, as we know, but John's death is right upon us and the text brings us face to face with it. And while for a moment we turn from Jesus to John, we do so to see two important matters in the text before us. First notice from verses 1 to 5, the awful danger of rejecting conscience. Here we have in these verses recounted for us how Herod came to hear of the ministry of Jesus and what his response to the ministry of Jesus was. And as we learn, we do so also learning something about Herod, that his conscience was nagging him. Now, a nagging conscience can do one of two things in a person's life. It can either cause them to do something about it and find relief, or it can cause them to harden their hearts against that conscience and drown it out by other means. And with Herod, it was the latter. His nagging conscience wasn't driving him to seek Jesus and find salvation. He'd heard about Jesus. But just the opposite. His guilt was real and it was felt. And if he was bothered by the things in his heart, he wasn't bothered enough to seek out Jesus to have these things resolved. Instead, he chose the harder path. Verses 1 to 4 remind us that the words Jesus spoke in public and the things Jesus did in public even reached into the courts of Herod into the royal palace. 
Now that's important because we need to understand that though Jesus often did his ministry in private, it was known all over Israel, everything that he did, even in Herod's court, even in the halls of authority and power. The ministry of Jesus was known. Matthew wants you to know that Jesus is not doing his ministry in a dark corner somewhere. Everyone who was anyone knew what Jesus was saying and doing in Israel. It had made its way to the halls of power where normally those kinds of men are not concerned with matters of spiritual importance. And in this context, Herod responds to the news about Jesus with fear and superstition concluding wrongly that John the Baptist, the one who was on his conscience, had been raised from the dead and that this man out there was John the Baptist raised from the dead who had come back to haunt him and hound him for what he had done. And he was worried. He announces to those around him what he thinks. He voices it. This is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Oh, this is why this man, Jesus, can do miraculous powers, miraculous things. Now that's interesting because John never did do any miracles, did he? John preached and John baptised, but... Miracles weren't his thing. So how it is that Herod thinks that Jesus is John, raised from the dead, is not really logical. But that's the way it is when you try to rationalise your sin and your conscience pricks you sharply and you have to decide what's going on. One commentator wrote these words of Herod, a wicked man needs no other tormentor especially for sins of blood, than his own heart. A wicked man needs no other tormentor than his own heart. And that was true of Herod. Herod knew that he was wrong in the murder of John the Baptist. And so that we know why he was wrong, Matthew now tells us what happened. How was it that John was dead? The stories unfolded for us. We not only learn in these verses why Herod thought the way he did about Jesus being John resurrected and why Jesus wanted to keep his distance from Herod, as we'll see later, but also what happened to John and why it was that Herod's conscience was pricking him so hard. And what we find out is that to silence John, who had been denouncing Herod for what we would call today his lifestyle choices, Herod had thrown John into prison. That's certainly one way of getting your accuser to be quiet, isn't it? It certainly is the way with dictators who find it easy to silence the opposition by simply removing them from the public sphere. Put him in jail. Here, I don't like what he's saying. And why had John been an outspoken critic of Herod? 
because Herod was living in an adulterous relationship that was incestuous. And John had apparently confronted Herod with the facts. Note the bravery of John at this point. It would have been in John's best interest to keep his mouth shut. And yet he spoke out against Herod. Let me say in passing that no prophet of God, and John was a prophet, ever spoke the truth out of the hatred out of hatred for a person. Out of love for Herod, a desire to see him converted and repentant and restored in fellowship with God, for Herod was a professing Jew, John bravely denounced the sin in which Herod was engaged. It would have been a lot easier for John to just skirt over that, wouldn't it? To never get involved in politics, never address the politician of the day. He could have said to himself, well, you know, Herod's not a member of my congregation. I'm not out there baptising people like Herod. I'll just leave Herod alone. Let God deal with him. But John bravely pronounced God's word against Herod and he did that because Herod was in the prominent place of ruling God's people. He was a leader of God's people. It was a responsibility as leader of God's people to uphold the standards which God had set down in his word which applied to Herod. And Herod was obviously not doing that. Well, how is this the case, you ask? Well, this is how the story goes. It's quite bizarre. It's quite tangled. And if you don't get it at first hearing it, I don't blame you. Herod's wife, Herodias, had once been married to her half-uncle, a man named Herod Philip, who is in the text, who is called Philip in this passage. And to them was born a daughter, the unnamed girl who is dancing in the passage. Josephus tells her her name is Salome. It happened that Herod, on his visit to his brother, Philip, had met Philip's wife, Herodias, and became infatuated with her and she with him, and so both divorced their spouses to marry each other. As if that wasn't weird enough, the girl, the daughter of Herodias, married her half-uncle. Now you can see how bizarre the lifestyle of Herod and Herodias had been and its effect on the next generation. And so Herod was not only involved in an adulterous affair, it was an incestuous affair, having married his brother's wife, his living brother's wife. And so both the laws of Leviticus in the Ten Commandments and the commandment which speaks against adultery condemned Herod for that which he was doing. John had simply made that known to Herod. And Herod, we are told in this passage, hated John for having brought that to his attention. And that is the response of people who are already in the grip of sin, isn't it? When someone for their good speaks to them about their sin, desiring only their best interests and repentance, the response is, I hate you. That's exactly what Herod did. In fact, we're told in this passage that what Herod wanted to do 
was killed John immediately. But what a weak man he was. The reason he didn't kill John was because he was afraid of what the people would say, what the people would think. He did what he did, not because he thought it was right, but because he thought it was expedient. It was pragmatic. And there you see the heart, to the, a key to the heart of Herod. He was not moved by doing that which, which was right. He was moved by doing that which was expedient that which would give him favour in the eyes of the multitudes. He no doubt feared the rebellion of the multitudes because John was popular among the multitudes and were he were to kill John, then who knows what would happen. To prison you go. And yet John's words are still in Herod's mind. Long after God's witnesses are gone, those words remain. Long after God's messengers are gone, those messages still speak. So when Herod hears of Jesus' ministry, he immediately remembers John. He remembers what John said. He remembers what he had done. And his conscience is bothered. Not bothered enough to submit himself to God. And the same pattern is repeated as it was at Nazareth. Hardness of heart. Secondly, in verses 6 to 12, we meet something else which I'll call the strange reward for faithful service. In these verses we have the very sad and moving account of John's execution as Herod now, as Matthew now recounts exactly for us how Herod was directly involved in that death of John and it all began with a birthday party. A very out of control birthday party. It was going to be a raucous party. There was going to be drinking, there was going to be other unsavoury activity. And these kind of parties were not parties that women were invited to. It's kind of instructive then that a young girl is brought to dance at this party. And again, it shows you the kind of household that Herod was running. And in this context, with Herod's mind as it was, and no doubt, alcohol and drinking and his lips ready to speak things he would have been wiser not to have spoken, his guard is let down. And so the party became an occasion for great evil and sin. I should add though, Calvin here, after denouncing Herod for his involvement in this kind of a party for about half a paragraph, also goes on to say that it's not wrong to have a good party. So there you go. It's not wrong to have a good party. The party itself is not the problem. The attitude of those involved is the problem. The things that went on there were inappropriate and so Herodias' daughter comes out and dances for the party, even though women were not present on such occasions. And by pleasing Herod, 
She extracts from the king an oath. What would you like? What would you like? It's Herod's birthday, but what would you like to the girl? She asks her mum, and mum says, let's put an end to this. Let's get that plate with a head on it. A fleeting promise made by a drunken monarch to a dancing girl. What an ignominious end for a faithful prophet of God. We can be stunned getting to the end of the text, can't we? We get to verse 11, you can't believe that God would let John's life end like this. Your faithful servant of the Lord imprisoned for months and then beheaded at the request of a dancing girl. Lord, surely this isn't what you intended for John. Surely it's it's a mistake. J.C. Ryle says here and reminds us, God's children must not look for their reward in this world. If ever there was a case of ungodliness or a case of ungodliness, of godliness unrewarded in this life, it's John's case. He was a man who deserved, if anyone deserved, the reward of a faithful servant and yet here his life ends in such way. Truly, he says, There was an event here, if ever there was one in the world, which might make an ignorant man say, what profit is it to serve God? But even in this event, we learn that our hope must be placed on the city which has foundations in a different place. That's where John's hope was. And though surely this must have been the most disappointing of ways to end his ministry, I can imagine not so much the martyrdom but the imprisonment in the last months of his life when John would have wanted to be useful in God's service must have been terribly frustrating for him. He would have wanted to be preaching repentance and preparing the way for Christ and yet here he was confined and then executed. And yet we hold to the scripture that says, as for God, his ways are perfect. J.C. Ryle says again, let all true Christians remember that their best things are yet to come. Let us not count it strange. Let us count it not strange if we have sufferings in this present time. It is a season of probation that we are in. We are still at school and in that school we are learning patience, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, which we could hardly learn if we had all the good things now given to us. But there is an eternal holiday yet to begin. For this, we need to wait quietly. It will make amends for all that is wrong This light affliction works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, Paul says. Just as he often taught, the path to glory is down the road that we call suffering, persecution and the hatred of the world. It cannot be any other way, can it? 
For if they treated our Master and our Lord like they did, how can we and why should we expect anything better? And that's where we leave this sad passage. Sad not only because of John's death, which was so unfair, but sad too because we see in it Herod's conscience troubling him and yet he fails to go to the one who can ease that conscience and provide the balm of forgiveness. And his nagging conscience and the hardness of his heart before the word of God spoken by John is a reminder to us to look at your own heart so that we avoid the mistake of letting his story be your story. And we could do this by asking, is your conscience tender under God's word? Do you harden it when the word of God pricks you? Are you sensitive to realise that you're out of line with God's word? Do you desire the sweetness of being corrected for your own eternal good in God's economy? Or do you reject the counsel of those who love you but who speak the truth to you even though that truth hurts? Considering Herod's conscience in this way also ought to prompt us to note this one final truth that if your conscience does condemn you, there is somewhere to go and there is someone whom we can turn to. Because of the cross, John, the apostle, can write, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In a moment we'll sing together the verse, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The cross is the solution for the troubled conscience, for every sin, for every stain. And as you look to Jesus in faith, you can know ease of conscience, but you can also be reminded that your reward will not be the welcome and the acceptance of the world, but a treasure of greater worth than all the world can offer, which is given to all who do turn to him and come to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for your word today. We're sorry for John, not sorry for where he ended up, but sorry for that which he had to endure in this life. Sorry that this grief also came to Jesus' ears and he, as we'll find out in the next verse, withdrew and went away, saddened grieved, turning over in his mind what he must have known would next come to him. We also thank you for your servant John, for his faithful ministry, his bravery, 
his love of truth, his willingness to preach and prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. As we reflect upon his death and Herod's conscience, please help us. Help us to have that ease of conscience that comes through applying that bar of soap that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We pray this for those that we know, those that hear this message, for our very selves, that we too might believe, come to Jesus and be saved. For we ask it in his name. Amen.